0: psalm, and it is filled with significance in a lot of ways, and it's where we're actually going to learn our first thing about God. Um, but, you know, we'll do, do a little bit of overview. Choirmaster simply was the overseer of the singing and the instruments um, when they, the Levites would sing praises to God in the tabernacle of the temple. Um, Chronicles 15, 20 actually tells us maybe what the Alamoth is. We don't know exactly, but First Chronicles 15, 20 says when the Levites are about to sing, they are to play harps according to Alamoth. And Alamoth literally means girls. And so the best guess is that it's a, it's a certain range or, or treble range, right, that they're playing their instruments to so that it can be sung to that. So that's likely what that refers to. But we're going to get our, our kind of point here. God redeems our past into his praise from this little phrase, of the sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? The sons of Korah were singers, musicians of the temple choir founded under David. You can look this up, 1 sorry, 1 Chronicles 6, 31 and forward. But who is the Korah of the sons of Korah, right? That's the real question. Who's the Korah? Number 16 relates to us a story of a man named Korah, and he, led, he leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and the set-up leadership uh, over Israel um, during the wandering in the wilderness. So Korah accuses Moses of trying to essentially lord it over the people and keep the priesthood for himself. His rebellion's cry to Moses was, this is from uh, the story number 16, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So that's Korah's cry against Moses. He's accusing him. So there's this gathering where Korah and his followers are asked to essentially light up these little censor sticks with incense of worship. And there's 250 of them, and they do that. And basically, God tells Moses to tell the people, get away from Korah, because I'm basically going to destroy him. So if you don't want to associate yourself with Korah, get away from him. And, And so there's like a spreading, and then all of a sudden, the earth quite literally opens up, and it swallows Korah and some of the people with him to death. And they quite literally go down to Sheol, to death itself. And then on top of that, the 250 men with their censers lit up, fire comes out from the presence of the Lord and consumes them. And basically God's saying, Moses is the mediator that I've set up. Aaron is the priest that I've set up, etc., etc. And so this is kind of the story that we have for the background of Korah. Well, later on in Numbers, Numbers 26, you get a, a recounting of Israel, a census of Israel and right in the middle of the earth, so it's a recounting of Korah, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. When the company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning, but the sons of Korah did not die. And this is where the sons of Korah come from. They're, his, they're Korah's descendants. Some of the, Korah, some of the sons went to, on to worship the Lord according to his law. Some of them went on to author Psalm 42 Psalms 44 through 49, Psalm 84, 85, 87, and 88. Uh, these are the same uh, generational descendants of Korah. And God declares this truth in Ezekiel 18.4. He says this, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. The sons of Korah were not held accountable for their father's sin here. But instead, they were actually redeemed into becoming a huge part of the leading the people of God in worship of God in the singing of psalms and the writing of psalms. Korah ate sour grapes, but his son's teeth were not set on edge. So God redeems them. And in the same way, God redeems our past. And when he redeems something, it's always for his praise. So our second point, we're going to get into kind of the meat of the psalm. Our second point is this, God is a findable help in trouble. He's findable. He's a findable help in trouble. And this is the second half of uh, verse 1 through verse 3. So God in verse 1 is described in three different ways. The first part, he's a refuge. Second part, he's, a, he's strength. The third part, he's present help in trouble. So there, there's only two kinds of people on this earth. There's only two kinds of people on this earth. There are those in the second coming of Christ who will cry to the mountains, to fall on them to hide themselves from God. And then there are those who will cry to Christ to fall on them to hide them from the destruction that's coming, the, the judgment of Christ himself. So when we seek refuge in times of trouble, it, it's, it's an important fact about where we seek it. Basically, where we go to when we are in times of trouble is a defining factor of who we are in Christ. Do we run to other things outside of God? Or, earth can be a refuge to us from God. But likewise, nothing on earth can touch us if we find our refuge in God. That's what this psalm is essentially saying. All humans are refugees, but not all seek their refuge in God. But more than a refuge, God is described as strength. Isaiah 35, 2b through 3 says it this way Um, it's this promise that this wilderness, this barren land, will all of a sudden become fruitful. And then the psalmist writes, or sorry, Isaiah writes this, the prophet writes this. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. God himself becomes Israel's strength. So he's going to give strength in the midst of opposition. Hiding in God is the greatest source of strength is basically what this psalm is telling us today. Hiding in God is the greatest source of strength, and I'm going to enter into a really lame analogy from a movie called Twister. If you have not had the pleasure of watching this movie, it is a really B-rate, awesome movie about chasing, like, tornadoes, not hurricanes. Uh, But anyways, spoiler alert, it's been out for, like, 50 years. Um, The end of the movie, there's an F5. It's one of the biggest, like, tornadoes you can possibly get on the Fujita scale, and These two people were chasing it, and then all of a sudden it turns back on them. But they're on foot, and they're in the field, just in the middle of nowhere. And so, of course, they start running. And lo and behold, there's this barn. And they run into this barn, and there's belts hanging up. They grab a belt, and there's this iron pipe that seems to be going deep into the ground. And they tie themselves to it. And this tornado is just throwing houses and cars and cows. There's cows being thrown around, all this stuff. And then when it passes over the barn, it lifts it up off the ground, but the pipe holds them, and they just sit there and kind of free float with the belt, like in the middle of a tornado, and that's kind of how it ends. Um, Now, here's my point. In a very much non-lame way, God is the pipe, that when we attach ourselves to him, he is immovable. There is nothing that can move him, and there's nothing that can move you when you find your refuge in him, right, in a very uh, much cooler way. So the word for very present, so this Phrase, very present help in trouble. The word very present is actually a verb and it means to attain or to find. And so it's kind of an awkward phrase and it quite literally findable help in trouble. So again, in the middle of nowhere, there's just this barn and in this barn, there's just this iron pipe right when the characters needed it in the midst of the F5 tornado. And in the same way, for the people of God, God is there when we need him, and he is findable when we need help. So verse 2 records the effect that this truth about God should have on his people. Uh, Therefore, we will not fear. Therefore, we will not fear. So how far can we take this truth of God being refuge, God being strength, God being a findable help in trouble? Can we take it all the way to the bank, basically? The rest of part one describes just how far God's help will go, and it goes from the very beginning of time to the very end. The very beginning from the very end. Uh, Commentator F. DeLitch makes a very helpful observation on the the, the phrase, the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of sea. He makes a comment that this is a kind of decreation. It's a reversal of day three. In creation. So in day three, land is brought and it's separated and it emerges out of water. But in this psalm, the land and the mountains are being thrown back into the water. And so it's like creation itself is, is coming undone. The very fabrics of God's design are being unwound. And yet the psalmist says, you should have no fear because God is our refuge, God is our strength, and he can be found. So even if creation itself was to give way, this promise still remains true. If the world around you starts falling apart, you have a reality more real than the world itself and God himself. So what do we mean by the end? What do we mean by the end? When foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem, particularly the temple, and the coming of the Son of Man, uh, Jesus says this in Luke 21 uh, verse 25, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on in the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, uh, end quote. in uh, Carson, and I, I say this almost every time I preach a thing, in Carson's and Beale's, Book that you should buy and should read and, and use it all the time. Uh, commentary on the New Testament, use of the Old Testament. Uh, in the Luke section, David Powell and Eckerd Schnabel, which is an awesome name, uh, he says this about the phrase roaring of the sea and waves. He says that it possibly alludes to Psalm 46, 3. I'm going to argue that it, it does allude to it. Uh, I'll give a couple of reasons because there's some other parallels in Luke 21 to this Psalm that makes me believe that it's not just a possible allusion. But it's a direct illusion. Um, first, the nations are in disarray uh, in, in Luke 21, in the end times. And then in our psalm, uh, the nations are also in disarray and they're challenging God and being conquered by God. Uh, people in Luke 21 in this time are fainting with fear. Why? Because they're not, they have not found Jesus as their refuge. But in our psalm, the people are not fainting with fear because they quite literally are with God and he is with them in the refuge Uh, The destruction of Jerusalem is all about Luke 21. And in in our psalm, it's the spiritual Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that will not be destroyed because God will defend her. The heavenly Jerusalem is established and indestructible. So basically, our psalm, Jesus talking about the coming of the Son of Man in the end times makes an allusion to Psalm 46. So how, how far can we take this promise to the bank all the way from the beginning of creation if creation would unwind itself? All the way to the second coming of Christ and everything in between, this remains true for us, the people of God. Other end time prophecies convey the ideas of mountains being thrown. I'll just put these by you if you want to write them down. I'm not going to read them. Ezekiel 38 verse 20 along with Revelation 20, 7 through 10. Revelation 8.8 also describes the second trumpet being blown and then this mountain is thrown down into the sea. And it causes a third of the sea to be filled with blood, which is kind of mimicking the Nile River being filled with blood in the Exodus. And it's not the only uh, Exodus illusion in our psalm today. So before creation to after the end of creation, God remains the same, a refuge, our strength, our findable help in trouble. And then we find our first Selah, pause and just dwell on the fact that he's our refuge, our strength, and our findable help, even when creation itself unwinds itself. So let's look at our, la- our third point, not our last. Uh, God's presence makes, makes his people, who are the city of God, immovable. God's presence makes his people immovable, verses 4 through 7. So from the fabric of creation collapsing, now we find ourselves to a city under siege. So in the first one, all of creation seems to be just collapsing around, and God's still there as a refuge. And now we're in a city, and outside of the city, The entire world seems to be raging and trying to break it down and get into it. Uh, That's the change. And note here, uh, look the contrast of imagery in verses 3 through 4. So in verse 3, waters are roaring and foaming. Mountains are being tossed into the sea, right? There's just this crazy chaoticness going on. Uh, But then one Selah later, we get this, the next water imagery. There's a gentle river Whose streams make glad the city of God. So, outside of the city of God, everything's just like that, probably making that noise. Inside of the city of God, there's just this gentle stream, this river that's just going by. And from it, the city of God gets its delight. And so, there's a huge contrast outside of the city versus inside of the city. Uh, Verse 4 joins a lot of biblical themes kind of together. The city of God, Jerusalem, is a big theme from beginning to end in Scripture. The tabernacle of God, or the concept of the temple, uh, we see this in Eden. We see it in the tent that Moses made. We see it in the temple of David or temple of Solomon. And then finally, we see it in Jesus and his church. They're all called the temples uh, throughout Scripture. So where do we get this? Well, first, God declares that the city of God, it's parallel in this, in this verse. There's uh, some parallelism The city of God is also called the holy habitation of God. And that word habitation quite literally is just the Hebrew word for tabernacle. It's the same word Moses uses for the tabernacle when he's setting up the tent, uh, which carries us in this. So if we're following this quote-unquote river of biblical themes throughout from beginning to end, we can see some things uh, that are helpful. So the first temple of God that was ever established, the first home of God's people that was ever established, was the Garden, the Garden of Eden. And in the midst of the Garden, there was a river that would run. And then eventually when it got outside of the Garden, it split into four other rivers. Uh, Jerusalem itself has an kind of ground stream that pops up east of Jerusalem and provides a kind of water source. So even like the physical geographical location of Jerusalem has an underground stream. When picturing the peace of God's people, Isaiah writes this in 66.12, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of nations like an overflowing stream. Uh, Continuing in the prophets, Ezekiel 47. This is the second to last chapter in Ezekiel 47. And write this down if you're taking notes. Read Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Or you can just read 47 through 48, the entire thing if you want. But it's a wonderful description. Uh, But basically, I'm just going to describe it to you not read it. Uh, there the prophet describes the newly established temple. So this new Jerusalem and this new city and this new temple. And it has water that starts coming up from below the temple and it starts going out of the temple into the city. And eventually it goes out of the city and it starts going all around. And verse 9 says this, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. And then it contains... So, From the temple, the new temple, the new city of Jerusalem, there is a stream that goes out and it slowly but surely redeems all of God's creation. And that's uh, Ezekiel 47. And then interesting enough, in Ezekiel 48, the very next chapter, the very last thing in the book, it just describes the new Jerusalem. It starts measuring it very much like Revelation measures the new Jerusalem in uh, chapter 21. Um, And this is the last words of Ezekiel. And the name of that city from that time on shall be the Lord is there, right? Which is very much in our psalm. Look at psalm, verse, or psalm 46, 5. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. If you keep going, eventually you land in Revelation. So from beginning all the way to end, you, you get this river imagery. The last chapter of Revelation 22, 1 through 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river was the tree of life, bringing back the Garden of Eden, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. Continuing in Revelation, Revelation 21, Jerusalem is described as the Almighty. And I saw no temple, even another description of the city. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. All of this is in our psalm, this promise that God will be present. So not only is he findable when the world's collapsing, he's present inside of you um, as a city. You are being made into the city of God. All these promises are about us. So all is not seemingly well, though, in the city. Verses 5 through 6, it tells us the city is under siege. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. That's an awesome word. He utters his voice, the earth melts. So God promises his city won't be moved. And that word totter, by the way, is the same Hebrew word for moved. And so you have a promise that the city of God will not move, even when all the kingdoms of the world move against it. And so there's kind of a move, uh, play on words going on there. So the city of God will not be moved. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, the city of God will drink the waters of Christ and will have peace and God will be their delight. So those who are in Christ are shielded from the fierceness and destructive forces of the seas and the nations in this psalm. And Christ is the giver of the living water Uh, John 4 gives a good description. Uh, He says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this beautiful promise, look at verse 5. God will help her when the morning dawns. So though the nations are raging outside, though the kingdoms are moving against them, salvation will come in the morning, with the sun as it rises. Now, this is an echo. Uh, This is the next Exodus uh, echo that we have. Exodus 14.27 says this, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And so, quite literally... That morning appeared is the same word used here in our psalm at the dawn of the morning sun or whatever. um, The morning dawns. That's the same exact word. And so so quite literally, God is casting a mountain, Egypt, into the sea. So it's echoing our first part of our psalm. But then the second part. uh, So in the first part, right? Land is being thrown back into the water. Well, think about the Red Sea. What happened? It's day three creation again. Water. God separates it and brings dry land out of water, creates on day three. Same thing, it's echoing the day three of creation. God's people are baptized. They walk in on the dry land as slaves, and they come out the other side, the free people of God. And then God reverses day three of creation and throws Egypt into the water. The sea crashes, and God throws the Egyptians into the water and destroys Israel's enemies without them lifting up even a finger. So on that day, um, also, it's described if you look later on in our psalm. On that day, it says, God will utter his voice, the earth melts. God will utter his voice, the earth melts. This language in the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then finally, our second part, it gives us our first refrain. The Lord, verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We'll discuss the refrain a little bit more in our third part because it it gets repeated. So in summary, verses 4 through 7, It promises everyone who finds their refuge in God that they will become a part of His city and that He Himself will defend His city. And they won't, do, they won't even have to lift up a finger. He himself will defend his city. They will be immovable, though the world rages and moves against them through false teaching, through persecution, through trials and tribulation. Though Satan cries, along with Henry, into the breach once more, right, to his demons, God does not allow any breaches. There will be no cracks for the dead to fill. But make no mistake, the end time, right, his enemies will be vanquished, by the very same means in which he created and new created the world, newly created the world, namely by his voice, his words. His words created the world. His words became, his word became flesh and started off the new creation, and his word will actually bring in judgment as well. All right, our fourth point and final one, the third part of the psalm. And there's a Selah, so you're supposed to pause and reflect on that, right? Um, verse 8 through 11, God is a warrior who fights on behalf of his people and makes an end to war. So we already had that kind of principle alluded to us in the second part, but it's drawn out pretty specifically in this one. So we find uh, four commands in this part. It's the only commands in the entire psalm. Uh, The first two, uh, you know, we'll talk about it. The first two are found in verse 8. Um, but overall, if we could summarize this section, uh, Robert Alter does a really good job. He says it this way uh, verses 8 through 9 mainly, but really section 3. This is God's overmastering all the world and bringing an end to war-, war. So if we were summarizing this part, it's God overmastering all the world and bringing an end to war. So verse 8 gives us our first two commands Come, behold. Come, behold, the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. So what exactly are these works that we're supposed to come and behold, according to the psalmist? They're found in the second half of verse 8 and 9. How he has brought desolations on the earth. So the works that we're beholding is the desolation that God brought on the earth. But also, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear He burns the chariots with fire. So what are we beholding? We're beholding the absolute destruction that God brings to his enemies and then the absolute ending of all war for all time. Those are the two works of God that we're commanded to behold uh, in this psalm. So what exactly, uh, what does this mean for us? Well, this is telling us that God himself is a warrior. He is seen as the one who fights. He's the one that goes out and breaks the weapons and desolates the enemies and forces war and peace, or forces war to cease and peace to come. Um, So God Himself is a warrior. It's it's similar language to Psalm 2:12, uh, which ends like this: "Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and it's talking about the nations. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed of earth." Uh, Isaiah 2 says it this way of the new Jerusalem without war. Uh, Isaiah 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up over the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And so when God comes and makes an end to his enemies, we have an earth with no more war. Uh, in a word, we have an earth with no more death. Uh, this psalm is pointing us to this quote-unquote utopia. It's causative. God is the cause of this. Uh, by the way, this, this breaking of swords and spears is kind of cool. In the Hebrew, it's like really intense. Like it's, it's the peel like, uh, part of the, the verb. And it just means intense. So you picture this guy just like absolutely just shattering swords and shattering spears. And then it gets less intense. And he burns chariots or shields. And I think the idea is... Um, I don't know, I'll just use Lord of the Rings. When, when Rohan, right, charges to save Gondor and they charge down to the, the, these lines of orcs and all the orcs have their little spears and they're ready to stab them, right when the battle line meets, right? Right when they're about to hit and they're going like 60 miles per hour on their horse or whatever, right when they hit, all the spears and the swords, all these weapons are just being shattered. And then like they just ride through them and kill them all. And then kind of at the end when all of it's done, they start kind of, you know, counting the dead and burning some of the other things as well. And so this is the idea that God is literally, he desolates his enemies, he breaks their weapons in the midst of battle, and then in the end, he burns the rest that's still left over kind of thing. And so that's the, the picture. So effectively, this me uh, so effectively, right, God is being shown as this intense warrior uh, who fights the battle for his people. Um, so let's look at the next final two commands. Uh, and this, this is the coffee cup verse. We did a, a coffee cup verse sermon series where we took verses that find themselves on the walls and coffee cups and things like that. And how usually it's plucked out of context. This is one of those. Be still and know that I am God. Uh, it may be one of the most misused verses because usually it's yanked from this context that we just described. So usually... When I hear people say this, and I have held this view for a very long time, uh, we just imagine it means go find some quiet time in the woods, calmly meditate upon the Lord while doing some relaxing yoga, listen to the crickets chirp, um, hear the calm stream trickling over the smooth rocks. And by the way, there is tons of passages about that, right? Finding peace in God, finding quietness and stillness in God. But this is not that verse. This verse is... Yahweh of armies just desolated and fought the most violent, destructive battle of all time. And at the end, he looks at you and he says, Be still and know that I am God. Right? Be still and know that I am God. This, this functions like this. Um, the word be still, it quite literally means let go. And sometimes it can mean to relax one's grip on something. something. So, uh, Alter says it this way. I liked how he said it. This is an injunction to cease and desist from armed struggle to unclench the warrior's fist. And Derek Kidner says it this way. Be still is not a comfort for the harassed, but a rebuke to the restless and turbulent world. It resembles another command to a raging sea. Peace, be still, right, when Jesus calms the seas. So the psalm very much works as God is saying, like, Who's next? Are you going to finally recognize who I am? I'm God. Who's next? And we're supposed to just be still and know who he really is. Know his power. Know his strength. Know his justice. Um, now, it's followed off by these, uh, these words as well. And by the way, note, this is the first time God actually speaks in the psalm. Right? Speaking, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted... In the earth, and he's working himself backwards through the psalm. I will be exalted among the nations. Part two, you have all the nations and kingdoms moving against the city. He's going to be exalted in all the nations. And then he works back to part one. All the whole earth is giving way, it's literally falling away. I will be exalted among the earth. God will restore his worship among all of creation and all of the nations. And then we get our last refrain. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. A um, couple of points here. God of Jacob uh, seems to be kind of this reminding us that this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises that were made to them uh, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham passed on to Isaac, passed on to Jacob, passed on to Judah, eventually gets to David, and eventually works its way to Jesus himself. Um, This title, Lord of Hosts, uh, this is used first in 1 Samuel, and it's actually found on the lips of Hannah as she's praying for a child, right? And she calls the Lord of Hosts for a son, and then she's given Samuel, who becomes the last judge and a prophet and a high priest. Um, He's also the one that gave us the first king, Saul, and then he gave us David, Uh, David. And then the title Lord of Hosts has continued to be predominantly used in Samuel and Kings, and then later on it's picked up by the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. But usually it's a title reflecting upon kingship and the leading of armies, and so maybe tied to the promise made to David. So we have this promise made to Abraham, this promise made to David. Both of those promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the king. He is the God of Uh, Jacob, he is also the Lord of hosts. Um, Listen to this from Jesus when he's being arrested. Uh, Peter pulls out his sword, lops off an ear. I don't think he was aiming for the ear. Um, And then, or he was the most accurate swordsman ever known on earth. Uh, Jesus tells him then, put your sword back into place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is the Lord of hosts. He can, at his words, he could have commanded legions of angels to come, but we know that he could not do that because he had to face the cross to save his people from their sins. So let's conclude. I want to talk about the inspiration for Psalm 46. Where did it come from? Like, was there a particular event in mind? Um, I think there is. Uh, If you want to, you can. You can. Uh, turn to 2 Chronicles 20. I'm just going to make references to it. In 2 Chronicles 20, we find an event that I think serves as the inspiration for Psalm 46. Verse 1 through 2 detail kind of the dilemma. King Jehoshaphat, who's a righteous king, was surrounded by Moabites, Ammonites, and with them some Muonites. So the nations are raging. The kingdoms are tottering against the city of God. They're surrounded in Jerusalem verses 3 through 13 then describe the king setting his face to seek the Lord Judah and all the cities of Judah coming to Jerusalem to also seek the Lord Jehoshaphat laying out this beautiful prayer before the Lord in his temple and finally we get this summary description of it meanwhile all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones their wives and to the, the heavenly city they come to the temple And they find their refuge in God, and they seek him because he's findable in times of trouble. The Spirit of the Lord then comes to to Jehaziel, and he prophesies to the people, and he tells them not to be afraid, also found in our psalm. For the battle is not yours but God's, therefore we will not fear. Um, Which just in this, you know, and obviously the psalm describes God fighting the battle. And then also in verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. All those elements are found in our psalm. Verse 19 then tells us that the Levites, particularly the Kohathites and the Korahites, also known as the sons of Korah, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And then, of course, Psalm 46 is written, uh, by the sons of Korah. And what are they singing? They sing this, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So they're going out in front of the armies and they're singing a common refrain found in many, 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 many psalms. So they're literally singing the psalms as they go out to battle. And then in Second Chronicles 20, 22 through 23, it describes the nations. They just start turning on themselves and they start fighting themselves. And it says, Because the Lord set an ambush against them. And then they destroyed themselves. Verse 24 then says, When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. They then come back to Jerusalem, and they worshiped God with harps and lyres and trumpets in the house of the Lord. And verse 29 says this, And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel be still and know that I am God and make no mistake in the same way like at the Red Sea where God fought Egypt without help and here he fights uh, these various nations that gathered against God's people without help Jesus himself is coming back and will also fight our enemies without help and Psalm forty-six, ten, will be true in that day I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth and his people will merely come to the watchtower and will look out and will say, "Behold, the works. Behold, come and see the works of the Lord." So I want to make one last appeal from Isaiah 55:6. It says, "This seek the Lord while he may be found; call upon him while he is near." Right now, God is findable in the person of Jesus Christ. May we find our refuge in his wounds. May we flee to the cross of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. For there will be a time when God will no longer be findable, a a close help in trouble, and he will judge all the earth according to his justice and his righteousness. And this is a psalm that the church is to sing in those times. May the Lord of hosts be with us, and may the God of Jacob be our fortress. Let's pray. Father... um, Be our refuge, be our strength, be our findable help in times of trouble. Lord, fill us with your spirit as we now sing back your truth to you. Lord, you declare that you'll be exalted in the earth, you'll be exalted in the nations. We pray that today you'll be exalted in this gathering of believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.